Please pray with me. O God, who made this holy night to shine with the glory of the Lord's resurrection, stir up that spirit of adoption which is given to your church in baptism, that we, being renewed both both in body and mind, may worship you in sincerity and truth. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Please be seated. Have you heard that collect before this year? Yes, you have. Um, This is the collect for the Easter vigil, the vigil um, going into the great day of resurrection. And um, it, in some ways, doesn't fit today because this isn't the liturgical day that we celebrate that. And yet, I think it well fits the beginning of our series on the Apostles' Creed. Uh, And it well fits that because it's in the Apostles' Creed that we declare who Jesus is as the resurrection and the life, who the Father is as the Almighty, who the Holy Spirit is as the Comforter. And as we look at these texts, it's important for us to come back and remember what is it that we believe as Christians The word creed comes from the Latin credo, meaning, I believe. And that word isn't just a belief of mental assent. It's a a word that means, I believe and hold fast and hold true and trust in. I put my everything in this. That's the the Greek word behind there is pistuo. And that's what it means. It's not a a, a milk-toasty English-American, I believe. Like, I believe the sky is blue. No, it's I believe in with all of myself. I pour myself completely into this. Credo, I believe. Why is it important to come back to things like the Apostles' Creed as a church body? Well, um, in his book, Alistair McGrath writes on the Creed, he lists several reasons, but I think the most important for us is that it's a summary of, of what the Christian faith is. It's a summary of the baseline of what we believe as followers of Jesus Christ. You know, in the early church, if you go and you read through the book of Acts, you'll see the apostles preaching that Jesus is the Messiah and people are baptized and brought into the church right away, right? What soon happened after that historic time in the church was that Paul started preaching outside Judaism. And so he started preaching to the Greeks, to the Gentiles, to those that didn't know the Old Testament, those that didn't know about the Messiah, those that didn't come with the preconceived ideas as to who God was. And therefore, it became really obvious very fast to the apostles, we got to throw together a summary of the faith. So the apostles' creed is just that. It's the teaching of the apostles, not because they wrote it. It's not like they sat down and, and wrote a section of it, but because we needed to have something that showed new Christians coming from various cultures and backgrounds with different philosophical pre- preconceptions what it is to believe in God 
And then what it is to believe in Jesus as a savior. Does that sound familiar to you? Do you see, we as Western Christians here in the United States in this era are going into a period like that where people are from all different types of cultures and backgrounds and philosophical beliefs. And because of that, it's not enough to say, do you believe that Jesus is Lord? Why? Because what is Lord? What is Jesus? What is Christ? What is God the Father? Why does the Holy Spirit matter? So you see, we're coming back in history to a place where the apostles were in those first couple hundred of years, where we have to talk about what it means to believe in God and who God is and how much he loves us. The good news of the gospel put in its context. It gives us that summary. Number two, McGrath talks about the fact that it keeps us on the path from adding new innovations. On the path from adding new innovations. So it keeps us true to the apostles' teaching, to the faith that was given to us, as Jude 1.3 says. It keeps us true to the faith of the apostles and the early church. It gives us a bedrock touchstone to come back to. All that being said, let's jump right in, shall we? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, is our text today. In recent years, it's become fashionable to challenge the personhood of God the Father. There's even a mainline church that in 2006 decided that it was also acceptable to say God the mother, child, and womb, or God the rock, redeemer, and friend. What about people who have bad fathers, the argument goes? Or God is so much more than one gender, the argument goes. Or others object to the patriarchal system, the argument goes. Have you run into that kind of thought when you talk about God the Father? You probably have, I have. What is the Christian to answer? Well, if we go back and we look at the intent of the apostles in the ancient creed, we see that God the Father Almighty is the descriptors that are used to talk about the first person of the Trinity, and not because it says anything about human fathers, not because it says anything about um, a flawed patriarchal system, but because it says something about who God is intrinsically. What do I mean by intrinsic? It means by his very being, by his very essence, by his very substance. It's not that he is a father in the sense that he's some giant male dude up there. It's that he calls himself father to us out of relationship, out of relationship. That his relationship to us most resembles a father, a good father, a righteous father, a loving father. Second, we have the descriptor that he is the almighty. He's the almighty. This is both re relational and intrinsic to him. 
So he's almighty because he's all-powerful, right? That's what almighty means, full of might, full of strength. The third characteristic describes both his fatherhood and his intrinsic almightiness, being creator, creator. So father, almighty, creator. Father, first of all, describes, as I've said, that relationship. Why does the creed begin with this? I think it's not coincidental. God is first and foremost our father as Jesus addresses him. Earlier in Matthew 6, he says, when you pray to God, pray our Father who art in heaven. How is it that he's a father to us? How is it that he's more than just the creator, more than just the almighty? Well, in Genesis 1.26, God looks at mankind and he says, let us make man in our image after our own likeness. And he creates us. In the gospel passage today, Jesus is giving his famous Sermon on the Mount as we go into this particular text. And look with me at the reading. Because this reading, we like to make it all about us, right? But this reading is actually about God the Father. It's about what it means to be a father. It's about what it means to have this relationship. Verse 26 and 30, through 30 reads thusly. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, being anxious, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? What's the justification here for not worrying? Is it in God's almightiness? Is it in God's creatorness? Partially, but primarily, it's in God's fatherliness to provide for, to care for, to give every need to his children. I read this passage and I always think back to that 1963 film. Maybe you're familiar with it. Leah actually wasn't. We watched it last night. Um, But it's the Sidney Poitier film, Lilies of the Field. It's about this um, traveling contractor. He's an ex-GI, and he goes from place to place doing jobs. And he shows up at this Roman Catholic uh, monastery for nuns. And they're trying to build a chapel. And they don't have any brick, and they don't have any laborers, and they don't have any money. They've come over the Berlin Wall, the story goes, to the United States to settle this place. And... Um, his name is, is, is Homer. His car breaks down uh, in front of their monastery. And he goes up and the, the nun says to him, you, you will build our chapel in her thick German accent. 
And he says, no, God hasn't told me anything about this. And she says, no, no, you're our answer to prayer. I prayed to the Father. I prayed to the Father. And the movie, it's just a delightful movie. I, I can't summarize it all for you, it's, but it's one of those great uh, mid-60s movies. Look it up, The Lilies of the Field, after this passage. Um, but it's a story of how God provides to build this chapel through his church and through an unlikely man who's a Baptist of all things, right? Yeah. Building a Roman Catholic chapel. Yeah. God provides. He wants us to see him first and foremost as a provider and sustainer. And worrying or caring, as it's sometimes translated, stands in the way of God's provision. Now, what do I mean by that? It's not that it stands in the way of what God actually can give to us. It's not like if we don't have faith, God can't equip us. That's not what I'm saying here, although some would say that. But what it is, is that it blinds us and makes us useless in the kingdom of God when we worry or care too much. Now that seems kind of backwards, doesn't it? You think, well, if something's really important, I should care about it a lot. I should worry about it greatly. But what happens when we worry or care about things too much is that it takes the focus off of God the Father and it puts it on me or on something outside of me that I can't control, that I don't have any ability to influence at all. So Jesus is saying here, he's not saying don't care, be apathetic. He's saying, consider the lilies of the field. God, your Father, cares for these so much, and yet you are made in his image. He cares for you so much more. Why are you so worried about things that God will take care of for you? And yet, it's human to worry, isn't it? It's human to worry. We get emotionally wrapped up in these things and it blinds us. Greek playwright Aristophanes said, the frivolous try to drown the cares of this life with love. Anacritia, the Greek poet, said that some try to drown the cares of this life, drowning them in drink. The Thebian Greek poet Pindar says, the only and at last death is what can free us from worry and care. But these Greeks were blind to who God was. But this too bears a lesson for us. Because as we look outside of the church, as we look at our neighbors that don't know Jesus, as we look at people that don't know God as Father, what is it that they worry about? Their houses, their jobs, what they'll wear, their social standing, their relationships, their health. You see, the Greeks had gods for all of these things, and yet so do we, if we worry too much about them. Anglican scholar and priest and evangelist Michael Green writes the following. He says, when we worry, it refuses to learn the lessons of God's providence taught by birds and flowers. Short-lived as they are, birds and flowers in their quiet dependence on their environment display the peace 
that should mark all believers who know who's behind their environment, a loving and heavenly Father. So you see, when we worry, we don't just look like Gentiles, we look like those that don't know God. And it's not just that we look like that, but it's that we bring that discontent, we bring that strife and struggle into our lives that is unnecessary, unnecessary, and not in the will of God. And it blinds us to everything that he's given us. It blinds us to everything that he does for us. It blinds us to all that he provides for us as a loving father. Now, the proof is in the pudding. So we go on to the second trait, the almighty. What does it mean that God is almighty? Well, it's not that great to have someone that cares a whole lot that can't do anything, right? And what, again, what's the passage saying to us? It's saying, don't put your trust and your belief and your worry and your care in people and in things that can't do anything for you. But rather, put them in God, who is almighty, who is the creator, who knows you better than you know your very self. You see, we don't worship an unknown God. Creedal scholar J.T. Weirmar writes, God wields his power from his loving and righteous heart, which gave itself mercifully to us in Jesus Christ. Hence, we may believe that God's power first manifests itself in its dedication to the salvation of the world and to all of us. Okay, that's fancy theological talk. What does it mean? That means that if you want to know about God's power... Look to how he demonstrates it in Jesus Christ. His power is made perfect in Jesus' weakness, in Jesus' sacrifice of himself. That's how much God loves us, and that's how much God is willing to go through to save us. We continue there with verse 31 and 32 in the gospel. Sorry, my pages keep sticking together today. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Verse 33, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Again, the Gentiles seek after these things, out of a blindness, out of not knowing who God is. But such should not be the case for you and I. And so, yes, we can look at our neighbors and say, well, look at that person. He seeks after material wealth. But then we look in the mirror. Do I seek after material wealth? Oh, look at that person. He fears disease. But then we look in the mirror. Do I fear disease? Jesus, when it comes to it, do I put everything in the goodness of you, of God? You see, the pagans had their fears and terrors about the gods that would come and strike them down, right? You've all read some of the mythology. I think they still teach that in school, right? About Hercules and how the gods are just played with. they just played with. That's not the Christian God. And yet so many of us run around as if it is. We fear things like terrorism, cancer, Alzheimer's, 
bankruptcy, car accidents. But Jesus' logic here is clear. If God is our Father and he's almighty and he provides for and protects us, then we don't have anything to be afraid of. Yes, it's true that disease still might strike us. Yes, it's true that these terrible things that a sinful world brings about still might hurt us. And yet, if God is our Father and he loves us this much, who can hurt you ultimately? Who can take you from his grasp ultimately? Do you see the logic of Jesus? What's going on in the book of Job in our first reading? Well, Job's friends are all saying that he should curse God and die because so many bad things have had to him, happened to him. In fact, his own wife even tells him this. Just curse God and die and be done with it, Job. Their voices are so strong that Job starts to believe them. And what happens in our first reading today in Job 1 through four. What does God say to Job? Did you catch it? I thought Sean Varga read it so well this morning, our lector. God speaks to Job's life, not in a cruel way, but in a reminding way, beginning with verse four. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or, or what were its bases sunk? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Who are the sons of God in there? That's actually the angels in Hebrew. Where were you, Job, when all that happened? That you're so worried about so many things. Do you really think that you even have the right to be worried about so many things? No, it's in my hands. I've got it covered, the Lord is saying. God speaks straight to Job. Far from feeling God in his almightiness, fearing God, rather, in his almightiness, what God is saying is that we're to rest in it, that we're to rest in him and not be anxious but for the Christian, we see a third attribute of God as our creator in which his goodness dwells. That is that he's the creator of goodness in all of his creatures and in special, a special position for mankind, for men and women, even more than the rest of his creatures. Galatians 4.4 tells us that as Christians, God has redeemed us and adopted us as sons. The Greek word there for redeemed is actually exagarazo, meaning to be redeemed, yes, but to be delivered and to be liberated. To be delivered and to be liberated as well as redeemed. So here's the next point. What from? Well, from sin and death, which we're going to talk about in a future clause of the creed. But God loves us that much as a father, and he's that powerful that he condescends to us in Jesus Christ, so that as our creator, he can redeem us and put us back, in fact, not just back to Eden, but in a better place, in a better place. For the Christian, 
We aren't just taken back to the garden in Jesus Christ. No, Galatians says. As a Christian, we're not just taken back to a perfect place in God's company, but we're invited into his company. We're invited into him to be a son, to be an heir, to be a peer, if we can even say that, of Jesus Christ himself. Whoa, that's something else. You see, it's not just to undo the crud of sin, but it's to bring us into the very company of God the Father himself as his son, as someone who has all the rights and privileges, you know, just like those diplomas, say, that you get, right, when you get your degree, with all the due rights and privileges of this college, right? In a sense, our baptismal certificate says that, that as Christ's son, we're brought into the family with all the rights and privileges of a son of God. To call him father, to call him Abba, to reach out to him and say, Lord, I need your help. You see, our culture takes that far too lightly. Far too lightly. It's only the Christian that has the right to call God father. It's only the Christian that has the right to look at God in Jesus and say, Lord, help me. Although God would have all people come to that point. And when we say almighty, we really, do we really believe in God's almighty provision in our lives? Or are we anxious? How are we seeing his care for us in our lives? Ask yourself that. Go home. Think about it. Write it down. How is it that God's providing for me this week, this month, this day because I think if you think about it you'll see he's providing a ton for you but so often we just go through life not and then we take the next step and ask how am I trusting in him how am I trusting in him how have I given him my concerns and my worries the relationships that I worry about the clothes that I worry about the job that I worry about how have I given that to the Lord how do I see him in that picture not just there on Sunday Finally, when we say creator of heaven and earth, do we see God's eternality? Do we see his purposeful plan for the earth? You know, so many people walk around this earth aimless and purposeless. All you have to do is look at the drug use in this county. All you have to do is look at the heroin epidemic. So many people are so hurting. So many people are so lost that they don't know where to turn, and so they just try to have a good time until they fizzle out. That's not the Christian. The Christian knows whose image he's made in and what's prepared for him. And don't misunderstand me. I'm not just saying good, bad here. I'm saying that it's all about the motivation and the purpose of our life. The Christian has purpose. Do you have purpose? Do you really believe you have purpose? Do you believe that you have a place in the kingdom of God? Or are you just going through the motions? Yeah, I go to church. Yeah, I read my Bible once in a while. Yeah, I throw up a couple prayers now and then. It's insurance. Or do you really have a purpose? Because others will see that in you. If you do, it's a dramatic contrast of the world. So you see, friends, in saying just these first section of the creed, you and I are called to believe it all, to put our trust in it all, but also 
to be a reflection of it all to the world around us. So the others who don't know God, who think he's the big guy upstairs, or who think, well, maybe by the end of my life, if my goods outweigh my bads, you know, maybe I'll get into the pearly gate. I hope. We're to combat that with a rigorous, meaty faith that says, no, God is Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. He loves you. He sent his son to redeem you. And he will not let you go. And he will try to bring you into his sonship until your dying day. Do you believe that? Credo. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. May we communicate that to others. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.